Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss technology, leadership, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we will be talking about surviving radical innovation, redefining organizations, and new ways of thinking about leadership. We are talking to Peter Hinsen, a serial entrepreneur, advisor, author, and one of the most sought-after thought leaders on radical innovation, leadership, and the impact of all things digital on society and business. Peter lectures at various business schools, including London Business School and MIT in Boston. Welcome, Peter. We are so happy that you wanted to join us. Very glad to be here. So, uh, we like to start this podcast with a few questions okay. uh, to allow the listeners to get to know you a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you start by telling me your morning routine? Um, my morning routine is that um, I first figure out where I actually woke up because I travel all the time. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and because it's often so confusing in terms of uh, jet lag that I never have breakfast. I know this is a cardinal sin. I mean, you should always have breakfast. But I just never have breakfast. And the first thing I actually do is I check, you know, my phone. I mean, that is just uh, the more horrible situation, but it's the reality that we have today. Yeah, unfortunately, we should. Uh, well, I, I don't know how life would be without checking your phone exactly, in the morning yeah. uh, or if there should be a time when you check your phone. But I guess that's how the day starts for most of us. Um, but when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone, if you have one? I think I step out on a regular basis, um, probably more in a personal situation than in a professional one. But um, I like to really take time off. And we live in a very rural part of Belgium. Um, and I was the only guy on my street who didn't have a tractor. And I bought a tractor recently. And being in a tractor store, um, having to talk tractor shop to you know the people who are used to tractors was a very uncomfortable situation. So, you know, the, the whole tractor thing really was a new thing for me. I could talk about that forever, but <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately I have, to, I have to dig into what we're actually here to talk about, even though I, I think you are exponentially more awesome now that I know that you have a tractor. Um, but Peter, it seems like you've been in the business of tech since you were born, having joined your father who was studying to become an engineer at the data center of his university at the age of five. And at that time, I know that computers looked very different to the ones that we have today, loud and large and clunky, clunky. But you became fascinated. And today you have an entire collection of Apple computers going back all the way from Apple II to Lisa. Why do you think you became so fascinated with computers? I think the, um, so I I grew up in in the U.S. for a big part, and we had Apple IIs in our school, and and learning how to program on an Apple II just blew my mind. And and the idea of creating something that lives, um, I think there's a deep, deep deep-rooted want inside human beings to do exactly that. And most of us can do it like a few times. If you have kids, then you do exactly that. You, You build something that lives. But being able to do that on a continuous basis mm. to just take your creativity and ingenuity and create something that actually lives on and does something useful is just mind-blowing. And I was hooked on that. I, I think I first programmed on an Apple II when I was 11 or 12. And, and that passion has never, never gone down. And, and it resulted in a very strange activity, which is the collecting. I mean, it's not just the apples, but it started with the apples and... 
since then, yeah, it's been everything from Vaxes um, all the way to the Commodores to you know all the different phones, and you know it's it's gotten completely out of hand. I recently bought a chapel. Uh, to house my Apple collection because what? I couldn't fit it into my house anymore, and and we live on a big farm, but you know just didn't have enough room, and I bought an old church uh, to house my Apple collection. Wow! So you're like uh, almost preaching to your Apple. Well, uh, tech is the new religion, so I, I guess, thought that yeah. was a very <laughs> telling way to put my machines in an old church. How so. many do you have? Do you know? I, I, it's not just the computers, but I started to focus on the software. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to focus on the uh, everything from advertising and displays uh, to very, very strange things. I mean, one of my favorites is that I started collecting all the Apple annual reports, which is very interesting because an, an annual report is is basically the ultimate spin. I mean, um, and I take 1984 because that's a wonderful year because 1984 is when the Mac came out. Mm-hmm. And by the time that you have the 1984 annual report, it's already 1985. It's actually the middle of 1985. On that moment, Steve Jobs was already on his way out. And if you see how the spin doctors and the PR gurus actually then crafted that in, it's the most beautiful you know, psychology of spin you can imagine. And I've collected every single one of the Apple annual reports. Wow, this is, this is fascinating. And, and obviously this passion from a young age led to action because you followed through and you became an engineer yourself. And then uh, you quit your job after you realized that the internet in combination with your programming skills was a pretty decent foundation to go off and start your own business. Now, what did you start and how did it go? Well, well, actually, I I started working at Alcatel when I was a young engineer. And I I worked there for 18 months. It's the only 18 months I've had a regular job or a, a business card or a boss. And um, I actually quit because my boss's boss's boss, who was the head of research, um, saw me coming out of the elevator one morning. And I looked terrible. I looked like shit. Uh, But I'd worked all night on debugging a website. And he called me into his office and said, "Um, are you on drugs? And I said, no, no, no. I'm, I'm doing this thing called the World Wide Web. And he said, what's the World Wide Web? And this is the head of research for Alcatel at the time. And I showed it to him. And he said this is never going to work. This is kid stuff. Just knock it off. I mean, if you want to have a career, this is not the path to do it. And I quit, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I just felt so passionately about this technology that I thought, this is going to work. And I started the first internet company, which basically started building large-scale intranets. And we grew the company very, very quickly to a few hundred people. And ironically, I sold it to Alcatel a few years later. They, they called me up and said, ah, damn, you're right about this web thing after all. And that led me to a string of startups. I mean, after that, I, I did a streaming video startup, uh, which was very nice, but way too early. We, mm. This is four years before YouTube, so there was no technology, no bandwidth. Uh, we ended up selling that company to Vodafone. Um, and then I did a third startup, which was a cloud company, one of the first in Europe. And we raised venture capital. We put it on the stock exchange. We did an IPO. And, and you know, 15 years went by just like that. And, and I enjoyed it very, very much. I mean, it's something that, you know, in those days, doing a startup was still a strange thing because it was we had no infrastructure. It was still, you know, rather special. But I enjoyed it very much. And then in 2010, I decided I, I had enough. I mean, I wanted to do something else with my life. And, and, and then I got into the life that I have now. 
Which also is a pretty awesome life. And it seems, at least to me, like you have some special gift in seeing what the future holds and the potential and certain technologies before they kind of dawn on the larger public. Is this something that you work actively on or does it just come naturally to you? I think it's a combination of um, an insatiable curiosity. I mean, I, I really want to understand how things work. And um, some incredible naivete, I think. Um, that's probably a good combo to do these things. And it doesn't always work. I mean, my second startup was an absolute disaster. It was a complete failure. I mean, mm. if you do streaming video four years before YouTube, I basically burned through everything I earned from my first startup and just lost it all on my second one. We sold the company to Vodafone for one symbolic euro. That gives you an indication that we completely ran out of money. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> I was like, okay, I thought you were going on, uh, going further with that, but uh, but that's fine. Um, so, so now you're helping companies and you're preparing them to see the future. So you're kind of taking your insights and then you're trying to, I guess, inspire curiosity in leaders around the world. Uh, as well as a lot of other things. But why, I mean, what drove you to this decision? I mean, was it just that you were kind of done with the startup world or? No, I still, I mean, I still very much connect to the startup world. I invest a lot in startups and, and I coach them and, and I just love it. I mean, but I don't want to, you know, spend three nights a week, you know, not sleeping because you're running your startup. Uh, that That's something at my age that <laughs> you don't do anymore. But I became really fascinated after having worked almost 20 years in startups and, and doing really cool technology stuff that um, I didn't understand why companies didn't adopt it sooner or faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would often go to a company, you'd meet one or two people who get very excited, and then you, know, you saw their enormously challenging journey to get anything done inside their company. And the worst were the IT people. I mean, the IT departments of companies are, you know, probably the slowest. Um, and, and they put the biggest brakes on anything. It's it's absolute disaster. Why is that? Well, I mean, I, I tried to answer that, you know, and, and in the first five years that I started doing this work, I focused really on the IT people. I said... I did a lot of conferences in, in, in you know, the IT world. I, I worked with a lot of CIOs. And I tried to convince them that this was their moment. I mean, with the whole digitization that is happening, my God, in any normal universe where digital becomes normal, the CIO should be the rock star in the company. And they're not. I mean, in, in many cases, they're the most risk-averse people, which is very strange because they implement more change than anybody else. But at the same time, they're extremely risk-averse. Mm -hmm. And one of the fundamental problems is that often they cannot just get their message across. I mean, IT people, unfortunately, are not the most gifted people when it comes to communication. And um, it's been pretty much a disaster. I mean, um, I think actually being a CIO in many companies was the worst job to have in the last 10 years because... Yeah, you would go into a boardroom and, and everybody started to get excited about technology and the world was talking about you know, self-driving cars and artificial intelligence and you would ask the IT guy, what have you been doing? And they said, oh, we, we upgrade SharePoint. And it was such a complete disconnect between what was possible and reality. So I completely shifted. Um, I started taking a lot of IT people to the action. I mean, we started doing experiences where we take CIOs to Silicon Valley for a week and submerge them into all the really new cool stuff. 
And it was very frustrating because at the end of the week, we would ask them, how was it? They would say, oh, brilliant. It was great. Yeah. And then the second question was, what are you going to do with that? And they said, oh, nothing. Yeah. And, and it was really weird. And I completely changed after five years. And I said, I'm never going to work with IT people again. I'm going to work with people who really make decisions. And if you work today with boards or executives or people who are capable of really understanding change and doing something about it, it has a lot more effect. And I think, yeah, in all honesty, I think the CIOs have, have you know, lost an opportunity there in the last 10, 15 years. They could have been the rock stars in their companies. We now see a new generation of CIOs coming who are digital savvy, who are who understand that this is going to be much more than digital and, and understand that disruption is really a, a potential strategic weapon. But um, for the last 10 years, many CIOs didn't grasp that opportunity. Hmm. Interesting. So let's get to your book, uh, the latest of uh, your four best-selling books uh, from 2017. This one is The Day After Tomorrow. It sounds a little bit like a James Bond movie or some action movie, which I think is probably good because I, I know that it's a huge uh, book about the future of business aimed at those who want to fulfill their potential in this age of disruption. Now, in short... How do you fulfill your potential in this age of disruption? Well, I mean, the whole idea of the day after tomorrow is a very, very simple model. How much time do we spend as leaders on today, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow? And today eats up a lot of our time. It's the 200 emails we get every single day. When you wake up at breakfast, you have no idea that these 200 are going to be so important. So that's, that's something that is difficult to change. But the problem is tomorrow. Most companies look at tomorrow hoping that it's approximately going to be the same as today. Mm -hmm. They extrapolate and they say, oh, 3% more or 2% less. And that worked fine in the 20th century when things were moving relatively slow. doesn't work anymore in the 21st where things are moving fast. So we need to look at what I call the day after tomorrow. It's your second horizon. And that is new ideas, new concepts, new business models, new technologies, but things that can change the rule of the game. And the problem is we haven't been trained to look at that. I mean, we've been trained to look at tomorrow by hoping it's going to be the same. Mm. I always give the example, budgets. Budgets is my favorite you know, season of the year because um, budgets is a yearly sadistic ritual that companies <laughs> undergo where people put in fake news into Excel that is consolidated into a budget that never works. And we've been doing that for a long time. And it worked quite okay in the 20th century when things were moving relatively slow. It doesn't work anymore. I now meet more and more companies who said, you know what? We're going to have to rethink that. I meet a few companies who said, we stopped doing budgets because it doesn't work anymore. If you see how much time that we have to spend on things that we had no idea in the beginning of the year that were going to be so important, we have to change faster. It's all about agility. So this idea of the day after tomorrow becomes really crucial. Now, it's a very simple model, um, and I'll be very honest, I love this idea. How much time do you spend today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow? The reality is, when I did my first workshops, I encountered a very nice Australian CEO who said, your model is wrong. And he went over the flip chart that you know, I had made my model on, and he took a big red pen, and he drew a really big box in the beginning, and he said, this is the shit of yesterday, which creates negative value. And I thought, that is so good. So I rewrote the book with the shit of yesterday in it. And what I wanted to do is to see what is the balance between your day after tomorrow thinking and the legacy that you're actually dragging along. And today it's very clear. Business leaders need to spend a lot more time just focusing on the day after tomorrow. Hmm. So 
Uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, obviously, you have uh, a lot of experience uh, working with startups all over the world and organizations. And then you talk to leaders basically everywhere. And I know that you are a tech optimist despite some frustrations from both certain industries or departments uh, that maybe aren't able to capture or realize or really act on the potential that lies in being data-driven mm -hmm. or applying new technologies, for example. But the companies who are succeeding at this, what are they doing? Well, I mean, I think at this moment, the, the companies who really seize the opportunity of the day after tomorrow, they're the rarest of beasts. I mean, and it's easy to look at a startup who have the potential to look into the future because they have no legacy. They have no share of yesterday. But if you look at a traditional organization, a company that can really reinvent itself, those are the rare animals. And I get um, a lot of um, energy from watching those rare beasts. And one of the companies that I've started, you know, observing recently that give me a lot of inspiration is Walmart. I mean, um, everybody talks about Amazon, um, and and we're getting a little tired of talking about all these unicorns. But n the reality is, most companies can never be a unicorn. That will never be an opportunity. But I started, you know, being obsessed with the other mythical animal, which is the phoenix, because the phoenix is a lot more interesting, because that's a, a mythical animal that can reinvent itself under stress and come out stronger in the end. And for me, Walmart is such a phoenix. I mean, I had a chance to meet them a few years ago, and they were devastated. I mean, they they were being attacked, I mean, full front by Amazon. They They didn't leverage technology in the way that they should or could. And what was ironic is they were the disruptor in retail in the 20th century. I mean, Walmart in the U.S. basically just destroyed everyone. And it was fascinating, a company that was a disruptor all of a sudden being disrupted. And I think they went through a really rocky period where they had no idea what was going on and they were confused. And then they got their priorities right. And now they're reinventing themselves. They're focusing on innovation and technology. They have some of the most amazing people working on really changing the world of retail. The whole experience for customers is being transformed in front of our very eyes. They're putting pickups towers, you know, just huge robots inside the Walmarts where you come in and scan, you know, your online order and you get your package in less than seven seconds. And now they're on a roll. They are just, you know, they're having fun, you know, really reinventing themselves. And that gives me a tremendous amount of energy. If you look at the root cause of that, I think it's three things. First of all, it's really top leadership commitment to realize something needs to be done. I mean, I meet a lot of people in my line of work and they say, oh, wow, wow, this is really great, but my CEO doesn't believe. And then I say, well, quit. I mean, it's the only thing you can do because if you don't have a top commitment, you'll never get it done. Second is they really understood that, you know, they have to fight with the same weapons. I mean, they're ramping up on technology like crazy. They've got AI labs and robotic labs and e-commerce labs, and they're hiring some of the best people in the industry. But the third thing, and the most important is culture. And this idea of having a, a culture where you embrace that day after tomorrow and you, you leverage that and you enable that to really change the business is the most vital thing. And that's, of course, the most difficult thing because culture is that you know, elusive, nobody knows how to do it thing. But if you see it, you know it. And that's why I think I get a lot of energy from companies like Walmart. So uh, I actually did read a few of your fundamental tips to organizations wanting to uh, renew themselves. And, and uh, the three aspects or uh, tips that you mentioned was make sure that you have cognitive diversity, mm -hmm. psychological safety, and accountability. Mm. 
Now, how do all of these three aspects play in so importantly in order to be able to renew a company? Yeah, and I think the psychological safety is is a little bit of a buzzword at this moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk to Google and it's all they talk about, psychological safety. Is that because of the study that they did? Well, I mean, partly because, but also because they're getting worried. I mean, Google is becoming a, a pretty boring company, a really old company. I mean, a very traditional company. And it's fascinating. It's only 20 years old, but if you go there, they've grown very, very rapidly. They have one huge cash cow. Um, but they're starting. if you pour enough alcohol into Google executives, they will start to complain about legacy. I mean, mm-hmm. legacy systems and legacy departments and legacy people. And I think Google is terrified that they will become the next General Motors or General Electric, just another boring company. And they want to escape that. And that's why they're so focused on this idea of psycholo- psychological safety. And psychological safety really is very simple. Can we give people the opportunity to experiment? That's all it is. I mean, giving people the mental freedom, the safety to actually try things. And um, there's been a number of studies where it's, that is completely correlated to cognitive diversity. So David Lewis and Alison Reynolds wrote a wonderful piece in the Harvard Business Review on that. Um, David is my colleague at London Business School. And I, I love what they've done. They've looked at psychological safety, how open-minded are organizations to allow people to think differently. And then there's a correlation with cognitive diversity. And cognitive diversity basically means how many different voices do you have in the room? And we've talked about diversity a lot, gender diversity, ethnic diversity. But I think that is just the tip of the iceberg. Cognitive diversity is just different patterns of thinking about this. And you know what? If you put people in a room who've all followed an MBA, you're going to get the same answers. Duh. I mean... It's not that special, but if you put those two together, psychological safety and cognitive diversity, you see that you can create a generative culture that actually nurtures that day-after-tomorrow thinking. Now, that's two of the three, because that's okay for Google if you make $100 billion a year. But most companies have the reality of normal economics, and they don't have anti-gravity economics like some of these unicorns do. So you've got to figure in how to turn that also into the bottom line, into accountability. And um, there's been a lot of work to combine psychological safety with accountability, but that gives you a framework to start thinking about these things. And I think one of the really, really great ideas that you know, companies now have to start really pondering on is how do we maximize our organizational culture and fabric that we put maximum emphasis on psychological safety, maximum cognitive diversity, and at the same time try to really stretch the accountability in the organization. That is a very simple framework, but I think very powerful to start thinking. And another piece of advice that you have to lead us today is, or the number one, is reverse mentoring. What is reverse mentoring and why is it so important? I think the... um, if you want to have a good lens onto the day after tomorrow, then you've got to, you, you got to find your sources, right? What is your mechanism to really understand what the day after tomorrow is going to be? And one of the very simple things is that young people are just closer to the future. I mean, that is a reality. I have uh, a 20-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son, and you know, they're a very interesting lens into the day after tomorrow. Um, when my daughter was in her last year of high school, she had a history teacher that liked my work and he'd seen a few of my videos on YouTube. And he asked my daughter, can I see one of your dad's performances? And she arranged that. And, and he said, oh, wow, that was really great. Could your dad do that speech at our school? And she said, no, and he doesn't have time for that. I will do the speech. 
So that weekend I came home and my daughter said, um, give me your keynote file uh, because I'm doing your speech at the school on Tuesday evening. And I thought, wow, that's really, really good. Now, the most interesting thing was, I mean, it was like a 400-slide deck or something like that. And we sat down that weekend and we went through it. And she said, no, no. Now, everybody knows that. That's not even true. <laughs> and she reduced it to 32 slides. And to have a, an 18-year-old reduce my 400 slides to 32 that you might be able to work with is a really interesting lens into the future. And what I see with many executives now is that they say, well, you know, uh, I mean, the, the old idea of mentoring was if, if you were 45 and, and a very bright 22-year-old joins your company, you say, oh, I will show you everything I know. I have 20 years experience. I will mentor you. That is really old school. If you do reverse mentoring and use that fresh pair of eyes of the 22-year-old and just spend half an hour every two weeks just getting a fresh perspective on things, that is probably one of the best investments you could ever make. So the slide deck that we're hearing later today and for our audience, we are now at the Oslo Business Forum. It's April 4th and Peter's going to have a talk in just a few hours uh, did your daughter uh, create your slide deck today, or did you do it your, yourself? Well, I mean, if this would be an audience of all 18-year-olds, I would have to use your <laughs> slide deck, but they're not 18 years old. Well, I, I think some of them are 18, but they're probably the uh, the volunteers working here. Yeah. I I want uh, we're going to finish off, but I I want to include one last thing because uh, as I mentioned to you when we were speaking yesterday, I did see your TED talk from Brussels in 2011, and you ended the talk with a beautiful picture of a tiger exemplifying how different cultures notice different things in the picture. Can you tell our listeners, in I guess the most visible way you can, uh, what this picture is and what our observations tell us and why we should be considering these observations in the future? Yeah, I, I call it the tiger and the rock. And, and, and it's basically, it's a very rich image, but it's really about what do you see? And what was fascinating is that I've tried this on many audiences, actually with different types of visuals. But it's fascinating that depending on your culture, you're going to see things that are either right in front of you or things that are more in the background. And this is something where you, you have some of these cultural differences. And, and in a, for example, Western audience or European audience, we tend to focus on things that are right in front of us. Whereas in an Asian culture, that longer term, bigger perspective, bigger picture becomes actually more important. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. We've been so focused on what is right in front of us. We, we see things that are directly applicable to things today that we often just either ignore or just completely are blind to everything that is not in that you know, full frontal, central uh, environment. And I think this is something that you see with corporates as well. They're so myopic on what is next year's budget, on what is right in front of them, what is the new, new thing that they have to apply right now, what is this quarter, that they often are completely blind to the bigger picture. And one of the things that I say to corporates is you need a better radar screen. You need a radar screen that is not just right in front of you, but longer term. You need a way to funnel that and to experiment and try things. And when you figure it out, then you need to scale it faster than ever before. I call it sense, try, and scale. And I think that is going to be a crucial capability of organizations if they want to survive in that day after tomorrow. Finally, we have three questions before I let you go. Uh, if you could give your 20-year-old self one or two pieces of advice, what would you tell young Peter? 
I'd say collect Apple stock instead of collect Apple computers. That would be a much better investment. Um, You'd be filthy rich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, see as many David Bowie and Prince uh, concerts in, in, in the flesh as you can. And basically just, yeah. You know, I mean, I've had times where I would doubt because, you know, there are a lot of people around you who are trying to tell you that what you do is completely nuts. And I would say have an even better filter for those people. Mm. Yeah, that's an excellent piece of advice. What's your favorite podcast? Well, um, it's probably not a podcast, but I, I became a really big fan of Ian Bremmer, um, and he has an amazing YouTube um, channel, which I think comes up every two weeks, which is called G-Zero World. G-Zero World? G-Zero, yeah, and it's fascinating. So Ian Bremmer is a political scientist at NYU. I, I had a chance to work with him last year. He's an amazing guy. And um, he talks about the fact that the world is basically, there is no world order anymore. We used to have the United Nations that became dysfunctional. Then we had the G20, doesn't work. The G8 doesn't work. The G7 doesn't work. And he says we're now down to the G0 world where it's the U.S. for the U.S., it's Russia for Russia, it's China for China, and Europe is just completely confused. And the way he looks at geopolitics is something that I think is truly remarkable. And if you haven't seen it, he also has an amazing puppet show um, in his amazing YouTube channel, G0 World. Awesome. Finally, where should people go to follow you if they want to uh, get more of your wonderful insights online? I mean, um, I'm on Twitter, um, just at Hinson, but um, I think Twitter is probably slowly dying. Um, I get a lot more traction now on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm one of the LinkedIn influencers. Uh, so LinkedIn is probably a good place. And then um, if you want to follow, you know, m more of my personal life, then Instagram is pretty good. Yay, I like Instagram. <laughs> Me too. And I do agree. Twitter is, I think, dying if it was ever really alive for people <laughs> outside of the media and politics. Thank you so much for joining us, it's Peter. This has been incredibly interesting. Thank you very much. Good luck with the show. Thank you. You're listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with experts from around the world. 